Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Business of Freelancing podcast. Today, we're gonna talk about scaling up, whether you should and how to do it. Today with me is Eric Dietrich. Hey everybody. And I'm Reuven Lerner. And so scaling up, I'll tell the uh, same sort of paragraph long story that I often do, which is when I started my business back in 1995, I had these dreams of the learner consulting towers, right? Like I was going to build this empire because that's what people do. That has not happened and I'm happier for it. We'll get into more details about what I went through and what you might go through and sort of pluses and minuses. But Eric, like you've gone in a totally different direction. Like as opposed to deciding you want to stay solo, you have scaled up. And so since we both tried it, although you've done it successfully, like where do we start? Like, like what's the difference between being on your own and being the head of a business? How can we think about it? Personally, I think I might create like three stages. I actually wrote a blog post a while back that had like three nodes with like a workflow. And so I think that there's the freelancer. I mean, three stages, assuming that you've gone off on your own and you're not working for someone else. The freelancer has a practice and that basically involves often a sequence of like rotating gigs, maybe a couple at once at times. You're just typically doing work for hire, usually for an hourly rate. And that's kind of it. And I think of that as a practice more than a business. There is a second category, I think, where you start to reason about your practice as a business, and you haven't necessarily brought anybody else into work for you yet, but you start running your practice slash business differently as an equity business owner rather than a freelancer with a practice. And then there is a third, I'll call it optional stage, where you start bringing in people to do some work for you and you truly scale up in the like org chart sense. I think the most helpful difference for me is to not draw a huge distinction between the latter two. So if you flip your mindset to being a business owner, whether you bring on any employees or not is kind of just an exercise in particulars. I think the most important flip happens going from having a freelance practice to being a business owner. And so I think maybe the biggest driver for that is reasoning about profit. And this is a little hard to unpack, but the gist is if you go off on your own as a freelancer and you say, I'm going to hang out my shingle and charge people $100 an hour, you might think like, this is all profit. You know, I, I don't really have costs if I need an ID or whatever the case may be. My client pays for that. So I just, you know, charge them, what would that be like $4,000 a week? And that's all profit. Except in reality, that isn't all profit. If you look at it from the business's perspective, that's all cost. It's your salary. So you are, in effect, running a zero-profit business. And this is kind of initially hard to wrap your head around, but the way I tell people to think of it is, whether you realize it or not, in a freelancer role, you have two roles, actually. There is you, the operator, and you, the business owner, the shareholder. And the business owner, if the operator were to leave, the business owner, in theory, if you were going to keep the business owner or the business going, would hire a different operator. So if you kind of split yourself in half and you had both of these roles, you know, with Susie Smith, the operator, and Susie Smith, the business owner, and Susie Smith, the operator, quit, Susie Smith, the business owner, would backfill her. And that is the way, I think, to distinguish between a business and a practice. And Susie Smith, the business owner, would quickly realize, my business makes no profit. I'm paying everything I take into my employee. Maybe I ought to do something about that. So... 
if this all makes your brain melt a little bit, we can dive into more specifics later. But I think that idea of separating your ownership interest in the business from executing and being the operator of the business is the biggest single difference that happens. And when you do that, you start thinking of the shareholder's interest as profit and the operator's interest as salary, which is actually a cost. So to me, that is the true difference. I think that's a great point. Right. I mean, for years, and I would say even when I first started my business, I didn't quite understand the difference between, say, salary and profit. Right. I was like, okay, the way people get paid is they get a salary from wherever they work. And you can have one job, you can have multiple jobs, it can be full time, it can be part time. And it never dawned on me that there are people who make lots of money and they don't get a salary. Instead, what they're getting is the profits from the business that they run or the business that they own. And the business, you think of it like a black box that's spewing out cash if all goes well and they get to hold on to that cash that comes out. But like the machine inside has the employees and all the things that they're doing. So yeah, that's very good because you have to separate. I mean, at the end of the day, it's just me. And when I go to my accountant every year to sort of talk about end of year stuff, he says, well, there's money left in the company. So you could take it as salary and pay tax X, or you could take it as profit and take tax Y. I suggest you take it as profit because it's usually a lower tax. But like, as far as I'm concerned, me, I'm just getting money. And this is a fancy way of me getting the money with less tax. But as far as the government's concerned, it's two totally separate roles. One is Mm -hmm. me as the employee getting a bonus, and the other is as me as the business owner. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's a very, very good point. The other thing is, I mean, we talk about this a lot here, and people talk about it a lot in general when you're sort of starting a freelancing business. Let's say you're a programmer and you become a freelance developer. So part of your time is going to be spent on running the business. That means sales, marketing, accounting, all sorts of invoicing, all sorts of drudgery or things that are not actually programming. And if you turn your company into a company, right, if you scale up, then some of those things for like programming are going to be done by other people. And some of the office things are going to be done by other people. And your job is no longer to do any of those. Your job is to make sure that everything is happening. And Mm -hmm. that's like totally, totally like hard for many people to discover, accept, reason about. And we'll get into that more as well, I guess. It is a true mindset shift. One that helps is to consider the idea of maybe a freelance practice that isn't sustainable. So Let's say you go off on your own and you hang out your shingle, you're charging $100 an hour, but you can only, for whatever reason, secure about 10 billable hours per week. So you're making $1,000 a week for a salary of $52,000 a year. My guess, if you're charging $100 an hour, is you're making more than that as a salaried employee. Again, you know, splitting this into two roles, there's the business owner, and the business owner just sits back and collects profits. And then you're also the single employee and you are earning a salary of $52,000 a year, and you think, this is a terrible salary, I quit. Now, what do you, as the business owner, do? You only have about $52,000 a year to offer somebody. You're not going to be able to backfill that role. You're going to have to you know, get creative because the kind of talent you need to service the clients you're servicing won't come to work for you for that price. So this distinction in your mind can actually start to have ramifications beyond just like playing head games. It can help you assess like, have I created a practice that's even viable? Like, can I keep going like this or is this just not going to work? You know, are the numbers right here, et cetera? It is an awkward thing to think of, but it, it does help you understand if your business is sustainable And also reasoning about what's called equity helps you understand if your business has any value. 
And so what I mean is equity is basically, let's call it the amount of money that you would pay for a business above and beyond the business's expenses. So like, I'm trying to think back when I wrote a blog post, there was a way that I explained it. It was like, imagine that you're out and about and one day you see a property on a lake that's listed for $100,000 and you say, wow, that seems like pretty underpriced. I'm going to buy that property. You are creating of sort a business if your intent is to rent that out. So if you buy that property, you become a shareholder. Let's then say you start renting it to people and you hire a property management company or whatever. And, you know, I don't know, let's say your mortgage is about 6000 a month, but you can rent it for 7000 a month. You are now a shareholder collecting profit, but you're not an operator of the business. So that might be an easier mapping to understand the difference between the profit and the operational costs. The equity part comes in is if somebody else comes along and sees that you're making $1,000 a month and they say something like, oh, that seems like a pretty good deal. I'll give you enough money to cover the $100,000 cost of the house plus another $20,000 because you're obviously making money and I'd like a thing that gives me $1,000 a month. So that profit creates what's known as equity, which is the business being more valuable than whatever your operating costs are. And walking that back, the problem with a lot of freelance businesses, they're quite literally worthless. You know, imagine this scenario instead that like you happened upon a freelancer that said, yeah, I charge a hundred bucks an hour and I'm making about $120,000 a year by serving my clients. What will you give me for my business? I mean, the answer is nothing. Why would I give you anything? Like all I'd be doing is taking over all your work for the same billable rate. Right, right. Like, I mean, so my company has equity, we have shares, but it's completely and utterly meaningless because, first of all, no one's going to come in, as you said, and buy my company if I'm not here. And if someone were to buy my company and I would like report to them as the owner, like what would that even mean? It's just sort of a meaningless sort of thing. But you can imagine a company, you know, let's say I, I build widgets, I even develop software, I do something where over time we're profiting more and more. Someone might want to become a part owner. They might want to get part of those profits that we were talking about. And so they can say, well, I'm going to get, let's call $100,000 a year in profit from this company. That's worth something to me. What if the company gives $100,000 a year in profits? I'll pay you to get half of that. Well, you know, how much is that worth? Is it worth $50,000? Is it worth $20,000? That you negotiate. Like, was it worth now? Was it be worth in the future? Certainly freelancers only have you know, their equity in their business, and that's kind of meaningless. Once you start to build up a business, though, if you have an intention of selling it or going public, then it's meaningful, but it doesn't have to be, right? If you don't give any of your employees equity, if you never plan to sell, who cares? It doesn't matter that much, I guess. So I think there's an important distinction between a freelance practice and your training business, which I would argue mm-hmm. does have value to a purchaser. You have SOPs, you have a you know productized service of sorts. That's true. There's a playbook somebody could pick up and execute, not to mention your book of business. And that wouldn't be the case for freelancers. So one great way to start having leverage and equity in your business is to create a deliverable that's very predictable and that you get really good at and you do for more and more and more of a margin. And that sort of thing, there's value in intellectual property. There's value in experience. There's value in the book of business. I don't know that the multiple would be the best, but like I definitely think that you know somebody would buy the training business in a way that they wouldn't buy a freelance practice. I never thought of that about it, but you're right. Like in theory, let's say I were to you know disappear, decide I don't want to do it, I could find someone else to train in my stead. And my company is still a supplier to my various clients. And I can call them and say, Hey, we have this new trainer, he's great. 
And they might be skeptical, but they might do it. And so the business will continue as well as write the online sales and so forth. Okay, that's more convincing than, than I was giving myself credit for. The purchaser would, however, put you on an earnout almost certainly, I would imagine, which is an arrangement where the former owner of the business that's also an operator stays on to preserve mm-hmm. the book of business for a time. But I might be getting a little far afield with all of that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think like to summarize, we have a note here about the mindset difference. And I think that like those concepts that you start shifting your mindset to thinking about your business where your salary, the amount of money that you take out of the business to sort of pay your bills and living expenses, you separate that from the idea of profit and Mm -hmm. starting to think about your business having a value, starting to think about yourself as both a shareholder and the operator. That mindset is the thing that starts to flip the switch between freelancer and business owner, whether or not you hire any employees or anything, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I guess leads us to the question of, do you want to scale? So like, I would personally advocate that anybody start to think of a freelance practice, whether you want to scale or not, start to think of it in terms of profit and equity and start to reason about those terms. But that doesn't necessarily mean you want to bring on employees or you want to sell your business or anything like that. So maybe the rest of this here, we could talk about going from the business owner mindset to actual scale and who that's for and who it is. And so like, what are the pros and cons? Of scaling up. Look, uh, let's start with some of the pros that I've certainly found, right? There's some companies that only want to deal with large companies. I mean, now I'm at the point where, okay, people are willing to work with me, but I've definitely had some large companies say to me, we don't deal with one person operations, right? That's just like, it's not worth our while. You're, you're like an annoying sort of gnat. We'd rather not work with you than deal with that sort of overhead and trouble. But sort of the other way of looking at that is you can take on much bigger projects. If it's not just you, if it's more people, then you can have people with different skills. You can offer a variety of different services, right? I'm not just doing software. I'm doing graphic design. I'm doing web development. I'm doing security analysis. It goes on and on and on. And each of these things is then a potential profit center that can grow into maybe a, a large business of its own. And so with all of this, of course, there's the chance to earn way, way more money. Uh, imagine yourself, again, as the programmer or you know, freelancer charging $100 an hour. Imagine you have working for you 10 people, 20 people, each of them earning $100 an hour. I know when I had employees, they were basically making somewhere around half of their salary, half of their billable income as salary. And they were furious when they discovered this. They're like, what? We're earning so little? I was like, look, there's overhead to running a business, you know? Like, there's all sorts of expenses, taxes, and my time managing things. And so it's not just scaling up linearly. Oh, if I have 10 more, 10 people, I'll make 10 times as much money as one person. You have to start like thinking about the kinds of people you'll have. So that could be a con, right? Like suddenly you're not just in the business of doing development or graphic design. You're in the business of managing a company and dealing with all the stuff that comes with it. And there is overhead, no doubt about it. And there's politics and there's, you know, <laughs> legal stuff and God knows what. So those are the first things that come to mind for me, I guess, in terms of pros and cons. For what it's worth, a 50% margin is pretty generous from the agency side. Like for anyone out there listening, if you go to work for an agency, you know, especially a bigger one, your salary will almost certainly be a lower cut of the overall gross margin or the gross billables than that. I think like big agencies will pay you like 25% anyway. Right. The pros to scaling, a big one is you're almost by definition building equity. 
And building equity in the business has implications. So I can say this about owning hit subscribe, for instance, especially as we've hired and hired and hired over the years and more of the business's functions I'm not directly involved in. I can go on vacation for two weeks and continue to make the same amount of money that I make when I don't go on vacation. Furthermore, as I backfill kind of the last remaining things I do day to day in the business, I could decide to take a month or two off or an indefinite sabbatical, and I would keep earning distributions, dividends out of the business, and the business would also probably keep appreciating in value, meaning Mm -hmm. I had different income streams. So what I'm getting at is there's a lot of people, you know, especially if you read like the four-hour work week or something, a lot of info product entrepreneurs like the idea of making money while you sleep. Equity in a business is making money while you sleep, or in a sense, passive income. The distinction there is if you are an owner-operator, so you are collecting distributions from the business, but also like the CEO, it isn't really passive, but it could be if you backfilled yourself and got out of the business, then you're truly owning a share in your business the way you'd own a share in Starbucks, and they just cut you a dividend check every quarter. So one of the pros is equity in the business, you know, which can grow and mean that you own a valuable asset, and then the distributions that come out, the passive income. Another pro, I think, for the idea of scaling is stability. If you are an individual freelancer, you know, maybe you take a gig every quarter or so. And so what that means is that in a given year, any client that you have roughly accounts for 25% of your, you know, total revenue for the year. That's really risky. As an agency grows, they would say they want really to try hard not to have what are called guerrilla clients, which is you probably don't want any client accounting for more than 20% of your book of business so that if any given client leaves, you're not in a catastrophic straits. The more you scale, the more you can bring down that percentage of risk you have with any one client. But you as an individual, it gets hard to service too many clients. I imagine you have a lot of clients, like you have a pretty you know, given the tightly scoped nature of what you do, that you probably have a pretty diversified book of business, but there aren't a lot of levers you can pull to do that. And scale is certainly one of them. So those are two big pros. I mean, I've definitely thought of it like it it was very important. A number of years ago, we started meeting with an insurance agent and we got all sorts of different kinds of insurance like like grownups are supposed to do. And one of the things was we made sure that I get good workman's compensation. Why? Because, you know, let's say I have some sort of injury and I can't go teach for a month. Well, it's not like someone else can go do it in my stead, right? The business is me, basically. And so that's a real risk. Whereas if we had multiple people, then that wouldn't be as much of a risk. At the same time, I have had people work for me before, and I was really burned by that. And maybe I just did a bad job of it. And so I decided, never more. Like, it's just not worth the the agitation for me, not worth how I want to run my business, even though it would reduce, say, the risk of that sort of like, you know, not having income in a week or a month. It would raise the risk of someone going in, which actually happened to me back when I had employees, going in, starting to teach a class, and being so colossally bad that the client calls me half an hour later. Now, you could argue that was my bad management, that was done poorly. Yes, but the scar has stayed with me, and I've decided I'm going to be risk-averse, and I'm going to do things myself, even if it means staying smaller. Oh, that makes me think of, like, on the con side, I'm just trying to channel, especially, like, given hit subscribe and its growth over the last few years, like... I think between contract to hire, like full-time contractors and employees, we're at around nine full headcount now. And so the more the business grows, the more pressure there is, because the more people are taking a risk. If you go hire somebody away from another business or, you know, just hire someone in general, unless you're a sociopath, you're assuming 
some responsibility for their financial well-being. I mean, well, you are assuming that responsibility. (laughs) Unless you're a sociopath, you care about it too. And that creates a lot of pressure. So if you make poor decisions or if there's downturns in the business, you're looking at the possibility of having to furlough people or do reductions in force and all these like horrible things that can happen. So you're no longer just thinking, well, yeah, it would suck if I didn't have work for the next couple of months, but I do have some runway and I could always, you know, sell my car or whatever. There's this added pressure of other people's livelihoods and families kind of depending on you. Concomitant with that is that you increasingly become a manager. So depending on what you do, this want to do, this may not be a con, but if you're like me and you took a lot of pleasure at times over the years in being a technician or an indie solo operator, having more and more of your day occupied by escalation, by one-on-ones, at some point you abandon the pretense that you do much of anything other than just have meetings with people and kind of like direct traffic. And that can be an adjustment, to put it kindly. There are weeks where I wake up and I'm like, why am I doing any of this? Like, why don't I just go get a job somewhere? (laughs) And that's even, you know, having a staff like working for Hit Subscribe that I think is great. I can't imagine if I had like toxic employees to contend with, but it can be a grind. So I think that's one to consider as a con if you're a technician, if you really enjoy doing work. You won't just casually manage people in your spare time. If you get more than a few of them, you will just become a manager, whether you like it or not. I know. Like my kids are sometimes, you know, they talk about like they were in the army, and they're like, all our you know commanders do all day is they're on the phone and they're in meetings. I'm like, right, because they're managers. Like that's that's <laughs> what they do, and it does actually take time. It's a set of skills and set of practices, and you need to have someone doing that. I mean, I'm not saying the army is a paradigm of great management. It is definitely, definitely, definitely not. But like someone needs to be organizing schedules and checking up on things, in theory, removing the roadblocks in the employee's way. Back when I was in college, I was the editor-in-chief of the uh, student newspaper. And I think I should have seen then what kind of manager I was or wasn't, because basically I would take the big story, every issue. And so I was the editor, and so I was editing the issue. And then strangely, the issue was late every time because I had to edit all the stories and I had to finish writing my story. And so I finally figured it out. Like, you can't do both. You have to choose whether you're going to be managing or you're going to be doing. But trying to do both is asking for frustration and possibly failure. I think I could throw another con out there just, I mean, depending on the week in which you catch me, if I've been dealing with the IRS or like this week setting up our health insurance plan, you over the course of time scaling a business are going to have to learn a lot of things subject to regulations and like these just like soul crushing pieces of mundanity that have to be attended to. And, you know, it can range like from tax implications, legal filings, there's just such an array of stuff. And in particular, if you're a freelancer, you're going to be bootstrapping your business. So it's not like being a, you know, a venture backed startup or something where someone unloads a ton of money and you can just go out and hire a head of HR to deal with this. You will have to figure it out in enough detail to make a decision about like, oh, I should, you know, enlist a consultant to help with this or whatever you should do. And that's going to mean getting to know all sorts of things that happen in a business. And a lot of them are not like pleasant to know about, you know, like state income tax reporting regulations or whatever. Like nobody wants to know that. So some of it, you know, learning about how profit and accounting works, there might be aspects that are interesting to you, but I promise there will be aspects that are soul crushing and not interesting to you that having staff and scaling up will force you to figure out. Yeah. This is where I just like, I don't know whether it's my personality 
or what, but I say to my accountant, you deal with all these things. But right, he has to explain to me because at a certain point I do need to make decisions, right? And it's better to make informed decisions than uninformed ones. But I mean, there are very few people who get excited about that sort of stuff. But I think about like, you know, say even if you're like, you know, going in, I'm going to delegate everything related to accounting or to HR or whatever it may be. But you're still in the moment faced with the task of like, how do I figure out who to pay to help me with this? Like, who do I hire? What do I do? There's a lot. So some of it will probably interest you. A lot of it probably won't. And you'll need to be comfortable operating in uncertainty and figuring things out on the fly, just in time fashion with some pressure on you. So it isn't just you know, in your leisure time, you figure out like what kind of payment structure you can use to pay an overseas contractor. So like, you know, that person isn't going to patiently wait while you put that in your backlog. So like stuff comes up that you just never really would have thought of and you just have to kind of take it in stride. I mean, when I started my consulting business, I was pretty sure, okay, well, like the natural thing to do is add employees and scale up. And so I started that. I hired people and it ended with a sounding, crushing thud Basically, in 2000, when the internet imploded, or you know, the economy imploded, basically, and suddenly I discovered, oh, like I don't have enough income to have all these people working for me. I had to lay them off. It was really unpleasant in all sorts of ways. After that, I had some employees on a very like contractor-like basis. But fast forward to today, and basically, my business has never been more profitable, and it's a one-person operation, and that's great. Now. I've been told by some people I know and respect that if I really want to sort of scale up my online sales, I will need to hire people. I was like, oh, no, I need employees. And they said, oh, you don't need to hire people on a full-time basis. You'll need a part-time person doing this, a part-time person. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm totally okay with basically finding some contractors to work on specific mm-hmm. things, right? That's what they meant by hiring people. And I have no problem, as I said, hiring contractors, but the business staying at one employee at this point is definitely where I want to stay so I can avoid some of those aches and pains from the past. So anyway, what I'm trying to say is you can be highly profitable without scaling up. It might take time, it might take effort, it might take some decent strategy and a lot of luck. There's not only one path to profitability. Yeah. As you were talking about your experience, it made me realize if I actually look back at what I did, it was kind of serendipitous, but I wound up figuring out a lot of different aspects of scaling a business at kind of disparate times. And what I mean is, I spent a lot of years in the salaried world and, you know, just kind of learned how a lot of different companies worked, which was helpful. During that time, I set up a freelance practice on the side, Moonlighting. So in a kind of pretty low stakes environment, I learned the basics of running a freelancing practice while employed. So, you know, if I didn't get business or whatever, it didn't really matter. As all that was going on, I kind of worked into management roles. My last salaried role was a CIO of a small company with an IT department. So in that capacity, I was exposed to leadership without being the owner of the business. So I learned a lot about, you know, conducting one-on-ones and how businesses tended to handle management and career advancement and a lot of stuff. So that was already known years later when I would go to scale the business. It was helpful to know that. From there, I started an indie consulting practice that I did for a long time. And in that time, I would sort of flex to paying subcontractors and doing things in an ad hoc basis. So that gave me a bunch of years where I was learning the ropes of being a small independent operator. And it was during that time I started to look at other streams of income and learn about equity and profit. So by the time it came time to scale, hit subscribe, I had a lot of experience earned in relatively low stakes ways. 
And I guess I mentioned all that to say, maybe if you're thinking about how to scale your business, whether or not to scale your business, that you could contrive of breaking that problem up and tackling it in segments or like running a controlled experiment. Like if you're thinking of scaling, take on a project that's a little bigger than you can handle and, you know, run it with one subcontractor and see if you hate that or not. That's an interesting idea, right? It's very nice to sort of get practice at these things in a slow, steady, relatively risk-averse way, right? Because it's hard enough to do freelancing and, you know, open up your own business. But I really like what you said earlier, Eric, about like when you hire people, you're responsible for their salaries, And if you have to fire them, you're going to feel awful, 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 because, I mean, in so many different ways. And so slowly ramp up and learn how to manage, learn how to have these meetings, learn how to like hire and fire on someone else's dime, if you can, before you do it yourself. That sort of experience, I mean, it's much easier to do when it's someone else's company. That said, it's very easy for me to say, oh, you should spend a few years in someone else's company when you're itching to be a freelancer. That might not go together. I recognize that. So we've got a note here to talk about the kind of issues you'll run into or that you should bear in mind as you gear up to scale. So what's your take here? Look, employees, we've talked about a little bit. I think one of the things to remember with all these things is there are no hard and fast rules. You can have employees, they can be part-time, they can be full-time, they can be paid a salary, they can be paid hourly. I ended up, because of my issues with employees, I ended up paying them, as I mentioned before, like a portion of what they brought in, in terms of billing. And I said, that way, if you don't work during the month, you don't get a salary. It's sort of like a version of hourly. And I had an interest in, let's say, you know, make their billing rate as high as possible. And it worked okay. It wasn't for everyone. Absolutely 100% wasn't for everyone. But I managed to find one employee at a time who was interested in doing that. And it worked out great. I have a lot of empathy for that, having spent so much time in and around agencies. What you are doing, I actually think is probably the best type of way to scale in the beginning with an agency. So for anyone listening... If you're going to preserve hourly billables and you're going to bring in people and subcontract and essentially take a cut off the top, whether you realize it or not, what you are doing is starting an agency. And a lot of early small agencies will delay hiring as long as possible. Then they'll get a big contract and then they'll hire a couple of people to fill it. And then everything is good for a while. And if they you know, get another piece of business, maybe they'll keep growing. But if that contract ends... And those consultants who are now working for you full-time, contractors, whatever you want to call them, if they have nothing to do in the agency world, that's called the bench. And what a lot of small agencies do is just fire people when they hit the bench. So I think that it's more transparent what you were doing is to say, like, look, this is a risky proposition agency in the early going, so we make money together or we don't. I think in a lot of ways, whatever their objections might have been, that's kind of better than saying like, oh, yeah, I got a job for you. And then you know full well that unless you can backfill the client with another one, you don't have a job for them. And that is what a lot of small agencies do. They go through these like hire and fire periods. Oh, my God. I had no idea. That's terrible. No, and I also told these employees, like, look, there will be you know busy months, less busy months. And if you want to do other jobs, go for it. I was basically treating like a subcontractor, but with employee benefits, yeah. like a stronger, like sort of, I don't know, you know, binding between us. You know, it wasn't just the standard sort of subcontractor relationship. But you're going to have to think about like, you know, how do you find people, right? Like, it's, you, know, you know, just try to find employees. That is a whole issue in and of itself. So anyway, if you want to scale up, you're going to have to deal with that to some degree. We wrote down here also, we want to talk about like just legal stuff and not because you will be sued, but suddenly you're going to need contracts. Suddenly you need to know what are the laws about employees, about incorporation, about clients, about all sorts of stuff. I mean, I don't use my lawyer very often, 
but I sometimes need to. And when I had employees, I had to do it way more, or I should have done it way more, maybe. I don't know. Like, Are there any sort of legal issues that you've encountered in scaling up and running a business as opposed to just being on your own? I'm sure there must be many. I think when it comes to staff and internal considerations, I didn't tend to worry about that sort of thing too much with subcontractors because in the early going when I would scale or you know, with my practice or when we founded Hit Subscribe, a lot of times we're paying authors or subcontractors in a way where the stakes aren't that high in the beginning for them. So we write a couple blog posts in a month, we pay you a few hundred bucks. So nobody's worried about that enough to create a contract. And then as we build a relationship over time, maybe you're doing a lot more work and we're paying a lot more, but there's mutual trust. So you may want to think about legal for subcontractors, but it really starts to come into play, particularly, or at least in the US, I can't speak for other places. When you're hiring people in like a salaried situation, there's a lot of laws about fairness in hiring. There are a lot of laws about the terms of their salary, whether they're what's called exempt or not. I have addressed a lot of those over the years by using Gusto, I think, the payroll provider who does a lot of that is done for you. This, the last like five years or so, is a really good time to be a bootstrapper because there are options like that. 15 years ago, you'd have had to like use ADP or something and God only knows what a firm like that would have charged. But I think, yeah, with employees, there is no shortage of that. So my recommendation would be to identify a partner that really like eases the burden of a lot of it and just kind of distills what it is you need to be doing. What about like on the similar notes, like tax and financial stuff? I mean, because my company is already a company, so the general stuff that the business was doing, we had taken care of tax-wise and accounting-wise. But suddenly there was sort of more of it. And so there was more paperwork. We had to keep track of whose expenses were they, right? Like right now, all the expenses are mine or my wife's, but like they're all put into the same, you know, same hopper. But suddenly we had to like have separate envelopes as it were of receipts and like, and the accountant needed to say, well, how do you, like, what do you want to reimburse them for? What do you not want to reimburse them for? You've got to come up with policies. Back when I had a bunch of employees, it's very popular for high-tech companies in Israel to lease a car for an employee. And so basically mm-hmm. they pay for it out of their gross rather than their net. So it's basically a nice benefit that's become less true over the last few years. So I actually offered my employees back when I had them, you know, 20 some odd years ago, the chance to lease a car. And so everything seemed fine and they were happy with them. And like, it was very, again, it was very like transparent. I will take out of your salary, whatever it costs to do this. Like you just get the benefit of the tax benefit. And I had an employee then turn, like when he was leaving me, well, when I fired him, the car leasing company called me up and said, so you're going to pay for the damage to the car, right? I said, Dude. and he said, well, you know, there, he was like in three accidents or something and replaced a whole bunch of parts. I was like, what? <laughs> so, so there are all these like financial things that I'd never thought of before as business expenses that suddenly popped up because there were more people doing more things. We charged him for his accidents. <laughs> <laughs> On the finance side, you know, I've gotten enough of a crash course, I guess, in business finance over the last few years. I, freelance business tends to be one of the simplest there is. Like if you are doing service delivery, as a freelancer, you're probably out expensing almost all of your costs to clients. So basically, you're just taking in money and paying yourself. As you start to scale up, if you have subcontractors, it gets a little more complex. As you start to take on expenses, it gets a little more complex. But if you stay in the service sector versus, you know, like manufacturing or e-commerce or things like, you're an order of magnitude less complex on the finance side. So I think this is one where typically the finance complexities won't tend to get away from you unless you get really creative about structuring deductions. And so I guess what I'm getting at is, I don't know 
what it's like in Israel. But in the U.S., if you went for a more exotic like situation of claiming business expenses and stuff, that's kind of opt in. You know, you can start doing things where you categorize different things as business expenses, or maybe you have a good CPA that's like, hey, if you do X, Y, and Z, or if you buy a car at this time of year and put your logo on the side of it, you can claim X. Sure, you can do all that, but you have a lot of control over how much of that you want to opt into. So I think this is one where in scale, it isn't that conceptually difficult to go from being a freelancer to subcontracting out some of your work. So this isn't one I'd be as worried about. When you take on employees, things get more complicated, no doubt about it, because you've got payrolls and benefits and certain other kinds of costs. But I think in the beginning, you can run sort of lean on this compared to what you're doing now. Right. I remember I had an employee, and it was probably like 10 years ago or so, when Israel passed a law saying that all employers need to provide their employees with a pension. And so we had to like go through and sort of learn yeah. how that was going to work and deal with that. He was a bit of a like a pension nerd, believe it or not. He was like, they're all ripoffs. I don't want a pension. Like I can invest it better myself. I said, look, that's very nice. But you know, the, the laws tell you I, ha- I have to do this. So again, I sort of turned to my accountant. He gave me some information. We talked to an insurance agent and you know, that was taken care of there. But also I think with all these things, I'm not saying the government is always kind, but at least I've found like if you make a mistake, there's time to make up for it. Someone will catch it. Like you know, my accountant will catch it. We can make up for it. We say we're sorry. Like they're in touch with the right government offices. If you show that you're trying, they're not like necessarily out to get you. <laughs> that said, don't tick off the government. I think that's important to bring up because it very much mirrors my experience. I'm actually still dealing with it to this day. I had a CPA back in 2017. I had two businesses and he filed what's called the S-Corp election. He made a mistake on the filing of it on our behalf. And so basically, I have been dealing with this annoyance for like now five years of the IRS having the wrong classification of business for hit subscribe. So the IRS goes to look for certain documents and it says, oh, you never filed your tax returns in 2018. Here's this huge penalty and you owe us all this money. This has been going on for years. But what I've been finding is that when you call and talk to them, it's a pain, but it isn't prohibitive to straighten out. Like the parties involved are reasonable. So I'm kind of piggybacking on what you're saying there, which is for anyone thinking of this stuff, you probably won't run into cataclysmic mistakes that you're making that you can't correct, even if these institutions seem intimidating. I think that's a great point that like, whatever it is, you can probably iron it out. And it has been my experience that different, like the Department of Labor, the IRS, these entities have some sympathy for a first-time business owner that's just figuring this all out on the fly. Like they're not out there looking to like, you know, repossess your car. They get it. So I think, yeah, that is good to bring up. Funny you mentioned repossessing and liens. So when I first got to Israel and I started my business before I had incorporated, so I was what we call here like self-employed, which is an actual legal status. It's not just because you don't file taxes here typically on your own. But even before registering self-employed, I was like a contractor in someone's office, which was supposed to make it much easier for me to do things. Anyway, he did not file the right paperwork. And you can imagine my surprise, like, I don't know, six months, eight months into living here, when there's a knock at my door on my apartment, and they say, hi, we're from National Insurance, which is the equivalent of Social Security. You have not been paying over the last few months. We're here to repossess your TV and VCR until you pay up. And I was like, what? And they said, right, we're taking your television. We're taking your VCR. Because at that time, kids, you know, VCRs were important and expensive. And, and like, when you pay us, you'll get them back. And I was terrified, furious, you name it. So, and basically I called the guy who was supposed to be paying these things. Like, oh yeah, yeah. Like, you know, say he spoke to them and they let us alone for a little while. And while I 
quickly left him and paid off what needed to be paid. Should have gone and gotten his VCR and TV. It was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. But like, you know, oh my God. Wow. Yeah. I still remember that like it was yesterday. Before we finish up, like, let's say you're thinking of or planning to make this scale. Like, what can you do? Should you do to like get into the right mindset other than working for someone else and getting experience and sort of, you know, thinking about what you want to do? What are some things you can read, prep, you know, to plan your mogulhood? So I think I've recommended this before, maybe the book profit first without ever having actually read it. So that's kind of interesting, but the author, Michael Michalowicz, I've read a number of things by him that I like, and a lot of people rave about this book profit first. And to the best of my understanding, the idea is you create a few different accounts in your business's bank accounts, and you use moving money between those accounts to sort of bucket money. And the reason I'm recommending this is it seems like an easy thing to go read to maybe give you a primer, not just on how to think about profit for your practice, but how to set up, you know, using no more tools than your business's account, which by the way, if you don't have a separate business banking, you should. So do that. And then you could use something like this to start to separate the idea of profit from just like cost and salary of the business. And the reason this book in particular seems to be appealing is because this much I know about it. It's called Profit First because it's saying if you can't contrive a profit for your business, you don't and shouldn't have a business. So make sure that you are doing something that's profitable. And if you're not, you know, you need to address that before you do anything else. So I think that might be a good tactical way to, to kind of put into practice what was probably a little abstract that I was saying, which is to start separating the idea of ownership and profit from salary and operation. Yeah, absolutely. I haven't read the book either, although I just checked and it's like sitting in my Amazon cart. I really should should do it. I, I have a friend who's been running a business for years and years and years. And I honestly don't get how he's been doing it for so many years because he always talks about how he's not making any money. He's not profiting. And I think like, you know, his family has money or something. I can't quite figure it out otherwise. Because at a certain point, like if your business is not profiting, then you're definitely doing something wrong. As people have often said, like, then you've got a hobby. You don't have a business, right? It's something you're putting money into. You're not something you're taking money out of. A business is supposed to be something that, like, again, it's this machine that gives off money. And so, yeah, yeah, definitely think about that. You already mentioned, like, the backfilling yourself. How would you do that? I think that's a very smart idea to sort of, uh, like, a little simulation to run in your head. Yeah, so, like, Um, for a freelancer, the way I would think about that is... You have a practice, you're going from gig to gig, you're doing work, and if you were going to hire someone to backfill everything that you were doing, your first thought would be, well, okay, so they have to go apply for gigs on Upwork, they have to you know, do literally everything that I was doing. And then this kind of speaks to what I was talking about, a zero-value business is like, well, okay, what do they need you for or the business for? If you're going to backfill yourself by having them do literally everything that you were doing, why couldn't they just go do that? And the answer would be that they couldn't. But- if you developed an extensive network of people that valued what you were doing and the way that you got business was through some kind of referrals or you had some way of going out, like giving conference talks, doing things like that, and you became kind of a rainmaker for bringing in business, now something interesting is happening, which is that you could say, I would backfill the part where I do application development and then I would retain the part as part of the business where we're doing our sales and marketing. And suddenly you're starting to think of your business in slightly different roles. So I think when you think, how would I backfill myself, deconstruct all the different things you do into kind of like requisite roles. 
and think of those independently. So you could, you know, maybe you could outsource or backfill the sales and marketing. Certainly you could outsource the bookkeeping. Certainly you could, in theory, I guess, outsource application development. And that's kind of, I guess, what I'm getting at. And at some point, if you deconstructed it all and outsourced it to different people and you owned the business, that's a viable business. I should know that doesn't mean go do it. It more means that like one good way to get on the path to business ownership is to start to think of what you're doing in those roles and at least understand conceptually how you would backfill them. It doesn't mean that you necessarily need to go execute on it. Right. Any other suggestions and thoughts for what people should do to think about this and plan on this before we wrap up? I mean, I think this is tied in, but like as you deconstruct the roles, you could prioritize what to outsource. So like one even... I guess more advanced way to think about it is like, well, okay, I do some bookkeeping, I do some marketing activities, I speak at conferences, et cetera. Once you have that, you could form a mental plan of like, you know, which one of those things would I get rid of first? And I think a good rule of thumb is get rid of anything that isn't kind of a core differentiator of what you do. So like you don't sell bookkeeping services if you're a software engineer. So why are you doing that? You can sort of, you know, call the things that aren't core to your value delivery. And that starts to like kind of hew towards like, what kind of business do I have? Like, what am I actually doing here? And then if you wanted to take that line of thinking one step further, instead of just prioritizing what you would outsource, have some thought of like, okay, if somebody, you know, snapped their fingers and it was a reverse genie that forced you to do things like, what would I do if I had to outsource bookkeeping? Or what would I do if I had to outsource these different functions of the business? If you've done that entire exercise, like how would I deconstruct these roles? How would I backfill them conceptually? How would I prioritize that? And like, what specifically would I do? You're really starting to think through your business the way that a shareholder or owner looks at it rather than an operator. Right. Again, I'm very happy with where I am now as a you know, one-person business, but I don't think I ever would have imagined being here years ago. I think I always thought that the natural state of affairs is businesses grow over time. And it's not a bad thing. In fact, in many times you're doing great, it seems like you might be having lots of meetings, which we all love. It's not necessarily bad, but if you're going to do it, if you are going to do this sort of scaling, you have to take it seriously. You have to think about it and you have to plan more so than if it's just you, because it is more than just you that's going to be involved. And so you have to have some responsibility uh, as a result for those other people who are going to be depending on you. You know, I think a good note to conclude on, because I'm not advocating that anyone out there do one thing or the other because it's really kind of a question of what you want. But if you start to think of the business from the profit perspective, if you're not going to scale, what you can actually look at doing is saying like, you know, I don't think hiring people is for me. What you can do is kind of like fix your scope or your revenue or whatever the case may be and figure out how to get more profitable or fix your size, figure out how to generate more revenue. So what I'm getting at is you can opt not to scale, but instead focus on how can I work less or how can I make my life better or any number of things. But all of that, I think, requires you to be thinking through that profit lens. And then scaling is really just investing profit back into the business to grow. But you could increase your profits and just put that in your pocket. You could in increase your profits and use that to buy back some of your time, so to speak. So like, you know, if you had some kind of service offering where you were charging 5000 a month and you got increasingly efficient at delivering that, if you were happy living on 5000 a month and eventually you figured out how to do that in two hours a month, that's a pretty good life. So thinking of your business as more than just kind of an ad hoc practice gives you a lot of options, not all of which are scale, but one of which certainly is. Eric, you got any uh, picks for us this week? 
because I'm pretty sure I've thrown out Profit First as a pick before. I wrote a blog post maybe two years ago that started a series, and I think it was called something like Profit on Primer for Freelancers or something like that. So I'll dig that up and throw it in there. If you're listening and you're interested in some of the concepts I was talking about, I think I elaborated on it a lot more in the series. So I'll throw that out there and then I'll throw a pick to Gusto for anyone out there who's listening to this and thinking about taking the step of putting people on in salaried positions or running payrolls. Gusto is good not just because it handles that, but a lot of the vagaries of different state income taxes and all that type of stuff, it's pretty done for you. Or if they need some intervention, they just come to you and say, look, the state of Iowa requires that you like fill out this form. And then you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I can do that. They wow. take a lot of the know-how of running payrolls and dealing with different state governments and departments of labor off of your plate. And I think that's wonderful. Oh, wow. That sounds really good. So I remember back when browsers were new. And then I remember when people invented a brilliant new idea for browsers, which was the tab. And now, of course, the scourge of my life is having like dozens or sometimes hundreds of tabs open with all the things that, oh, yeah, one of these days I'm going to want to read and get to. So about two weeks ago, I finally said, this is madness. I know that there are tab managers out there. Maybe I should try one. And so I, I found one from this company called Workona. And I think they basically do this tab manager as part of an enterprise software collaboration system. I don't care. For me, it's been free. It's been great. I use it in Firefox. I now have like a bunch of different workspaces, as they call them, described. And basically, I only have one browser window open at any given time. And when I switch to a different workspace, it just sort of shows me a different set of tabs. So I have one set of tabs for teaching, another set of tabs for like social media, another one for my online business, another one of to read. And then every so often I just go through the to read and basically say, no, I'm not going to read this or this or this or this, this. And you can search through them. I've been very impressed with what I've seen. And I know I've only scratched the surface. And I definitely feel like I have a much better tab situation than I did before, if only because it tells me how many I have open in each workspace. I'm like, oh my God, I have 60 tabs open in this one workspace. I got to pare that down. So it like freaks me out on a more frequent basis and allows me to cut it down. And I know where things are more. But I definitely uh, recommend people take a look at the uh, Workona. I use Firefox, but I think they have it for other browsers as well, Tab Manager. And there we go. So thanks for listening. Eric, is this the end of our season? I believe it is. It is indeed. So we thank you all for listening to these episodes. We will be back soon with more episodes, and we would love to hear from you on what topics you would like us to discuss, whether it's people interview, whether it's books to review, whether it's um, ideas, what problems that you're having. We would love to hear from you. Please do contact us via the show page, and we'll be back very soon with yet another season of The Business of Freelancing.